Please turn in your Bibles. I believe it's Psalm 85. I forgot to got distracted when I was typing the bulletin. But it is Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Thus far, our Old Testament lesson. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Our focus this morning will be on verses 15 and 16, but I will begin our reading with verse 1 of chapter 4 to set the proper context. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower earthly regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please join me now in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we know that we need it. We pray that you would grab hold of our attention, that you would open our eyes to behold Christ, that we would hear him speaking to us. That we would desire that he be made known through us. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in tempestuous times. Controversy and conflict abounds in the world at large and is increasingly slipping into the church as well. Will the church succumb to the pressure and leap into the fray of divisiveness and destruction, or will it somehow rise above the fray? The book of Ephesians gives us the direction we need that that might be the case. Paul was imprisoned for the faith, concerned for the future of the churches that he had planted, that he could no longer visit or guide or encourage. And so he wrote this letter to the churches about the church so that they would not founder. In chapters 1 to 3, he reminded them of what the church is in Christ. He gives his most focused attention on the meaning and significance of the church in its relationship to Christ and one another and to God's plan for eternity. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he shows the church how, as the church, they must live for Christ. He applies all that he reminded them about what the church is and says, now become what you are. Be the church. And he lays forth before them what that means, what that looks like. And it means the same for us as it did for them. And particularly in these first 16 verses of chapter 4, he sets forth his argument for the unity of the church, for pursuing that unity, calling on us as believers to live in a manner worthy of our calling into the church of Jesus Christ and rooting that unity in the very unity of God himself. And then he goes on to address the reality of our diversity and yet how even that contributes 
to the unity because it's Christ who gave diverse gifts. But he gave them so that we might use them with and for one another. And building one another up into one unified church. And as he comes to our text today in verses 15 and 16, it's, it's as though he's been climbing this mountain of argument for living out the unity of the church that is our reality in Christ. It's as though he's just on the crest of the summit and it, when you get near the top of that hill, you need just a little extra to get up on top. And so he just sort of pours it all out and and prepositional phrase running over prepositional phrase to try and help us get to the summit so that we could look back over where we've been and look forward and see the vistas of what it means to be the church united in Christ. And so as he looks out on the landscape and sees and sets forth for us what is the truth about how we are to live as the church. He points first to the manner of growth in unity, which is gospel truth in Christian love. The manner of growth in unity. He says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. He is, in context, creating a contrast with what he had said earlier in verse 14 about what unity ought not to look like. Of being children in a little rowboat tossed on the waves, driven by every wind of doctrine, of false doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And over against the craftiness and deceitful schemes, he sets, rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Those that would disrupt the church, that which will disrupt the church is deceitful schemes by craftiness. And over against that, he says, speaking the truth in love. We're to be different than the world. All the scheming and the deceit, rather we are to speak the truth in love. And in fact, what's interesting is that Paul uses a rare word here. He doesn't, uh, he takes the noun for truth and uses its verbal form. So it really says truthing in love. Now the context here is clearly in the teaching ministry of the church. In verse 11, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The focus is on the teaching of Christ, but he doesn't say, say the truth in love. He says, truthing in love. 
Over against the craftiness, there is to be truth. And the truth is to be proclaimed. And here, the emphasis of this truth is not mere truth, but gospel truth. Over against the false teaching of the teachers. But we need to hold forth the gospel truth. But it needs to be held forth in love. There is an imbalance too often of those who love the truth and those who love to love. And in the world's eyes, these are often pitted against one another. Uh, People will walk up to someone and insult someone and say, sorry, I'm just calling it as I see it. But on the other hand, love is often viewed as a betrayal of the truth. In our current argument over human sexuality in both in the culture and in the church, there is an argument that we just need to love and accept people as they are. That if you really love them, you're not going to point out their error. You're not going to say things that would make them feel bad. But Paul, in calling for the unity of the church, rooting that unity in God himself, says that truthing it in love is the way that we are to go forward. And indeed, truth and love is the picture, the constant picture we get throughout the scriptures of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. That God is the one and God is the context where truth and love meet. Even in the psalm that we just read, verse 10, sure, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Where God is, that's what happened. And the word faithfulness is the same word from which the word truth Comes. It's the same word where we get the phrase amen. And steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love and truth meet where God is active at work in the lives of his people because they are what is encompassed in God himself. In John 1 1, where John in his prologue is introducing us to Jesus. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace of which love is one expression of grace. Grace and truth are found in Jesus Christ. It's not just all overflowing emotion of making you feel good. It's not the strong, hard, these are the facts and live with it. But in Christ, we find God's loving grace reaching out to sinners without any diversion or abandonment of the truth. And in John 14, as Jesus interacted with his disciples, 
Jesus said, when Thomas said, Lord, where are you going? In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience to the truth is an expression of love. It's not that love and truth are pitted against each other, but rather they come together to express the fullness of who God is and how we are to love. And in his first letter, John makes that explicitly clear. Verse 16 of chapter 3, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, love and truth come together. This is the manner of God, and it's the manner of the church and the way in which we are to grow in unity. Rather, over against the confusion in the world, we are to truth it in love. We speak the truth, but we go beyond mere speaking to demonstrate it in the way that we live. That's our challenge. Because people are being pulled in either direction. Um, you, you, you take any, any topic of controversy, whether it be race or gender, sexuality, we're pulled. We either draw the line and that we're going no further. We have to be firm because the world is beating hard on us. Or else we say, no, no, you're driving people away. We need to just love and embrace them as they are and and let them know that we love them because we say the things only that will make them feel better about themselves. But then what happens? Those who promote the feeling, criticize those who call for truth about any of these issues. Those who demand truth, criticize those that say we need to care, we need to love. And for Paul, as he's struggling to get to the crest of Christian unity, it's truth and love. It's truth and love. Now, the measure, that's the manner of our growth in unity. That's how we are to grow. We don't choose one or the other. We love people with the truth. We truth people with love. The measure of growth in unity is a growing maturity in Christ. Again, in verse 15, he is reflecting over against the warning of verse 14. He says... 
we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He had said earlier that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. There needs to be a growing maturity in Christ. We're not children anymore. We don't just go impulsively darting here and there, following the latest fad. No, we are to grow up, not just stay children. We are to grow up, not to be children. We are to grow up into him, into Christ, who is the head. We are to come to him. We are to be conformed to his image because that's who God is making us. And it, you see, it is as we come to Jesus, as we grow in maturity in Jesus, as we grow up in Jesus, that we truly grow together. When we impulsively demand our own way and run about in every direction, just expending energy, we're acting like little kids. Go to a daycare. Step into a room in daycare. What do you see? Kids running every which direction. All by themselves. One doing this. One doing that. One bouncing off the wall here. One crying over in a corner. But no, we're to grow into Christ. We are to draw near to him. To reflect more his image in the way that we live. And and as Paul is trying to draw his thoughts together on the importance of this unity, of our relationship to Christ and our relationship to one another, he says we are to grow into him who is the head. Now here he's making a distinction between Christ as the head with authority and, and direction and us as the body, but But then he says we're to grow into Christ. Now, the body doesn't grow into the head. In a sense, the body is directing the head, is directed by the head. But you see, he's just drawing. He he sees Christ as the basis for our unity and the necessity of growth that we can't remain children. We need to make progress. We need to grow in love. We need to grow in truth. And both need to be seen and reflected in our lives. And so he's drawing us to measure ourselves by Christ. That's how we'll know if we are truly united. Not that everybody necessarily agrees with everyone on every issue, but are we growing into Christ so that when people see us, They see him. The measure of growth in unity is a growing maturity in Christ. But then we need to see that the means of growth in unity is Christ working in us. As he moves into verse 16, he says, into Christ from whom 
the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. From him, from Christ, the whole body makes the body grow. Christ is working in us because he's working through us. And it is as he works in us and through us that the body is able to grow. We will not become united just because we decide we need to get our act together and we need to be united in Christ. It is only as we are maturing in Christ and as Christ is working within us. We may want to mature in Christ, but if he by his spirit is not working in us so that what we are doing is empowered by his love, we will not be able to accomplish what we wish. We can meet here for worship. We can sing the songs in harmony with one another. We can all stand up at the same time and sit down at the same time. But we can do that simply because we know the routine. We know the playbook. We know what comes next. And because we don't want to be the one that seem to be out of step. That's kind of embarrassing when you're sitting down, when everybody else is standing. And and so we know what we need to do. But that doesn't mean that we as a church are united. That's not what produces unity. It's, It's Christ working in us. Christ giving to us the means so that we might work out our unity and truly become united. The body grows by building itself up in love. Now that doesn't mean We don't need Jesus because the verse begins from whom the whole body grows, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But there's no place for us to say, well, the church doesn't need me. It's the whole body. The whole body working to make the body grow. That's how we grow in love and in unity as Christ works in each of us that we might work together in Christ because the movement of growth in unity is mutual interdependence in love. Paul here is just grabbing all that he can to, in his excitement to cast forth this vision of unity when each of us is drawing on the grace of Christ working in us and uses it to fit together. And so he goes back to chapter 2 where he's talking in verse Twenty and twenty-one, built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so he already has this vision of the church as a holy temple, and so he says that that the church is joined. Now, this word of, of joining is a reference to architecture, and in the, uh, in the old days, they didn't use mortar when they would build buildings. They shaped the stones very carefully so that the stones fit together. Mortar is probably a more modern shortcut We can't get those edges exactly right, so we'll give a little bit so that they fit. But you look at some of the ancient wonders of the world, and there is no mortar. The stones have been very carefully shaped, and they're very carefully fit together. There are no gaps. The walls are, you can't push the walls over because there's no mortar holding everything together because all the pieces are fit so that they press against one another. But then Paul has been thinking as he wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 2 about the church not just as a building but as a body. And he's already referred to us as as a body, but he says um, in verse 19 of Colossians 2, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. So those are the two words, joined together and knit together. And, and, And he just wants to grab everything he can to point out how much we all have a stake in the whole church growing. We need one another. We need to fit together. Each part is working properly. Each part is working properly. Each part is fitting. And so that our mutual interdependence is what, in fact, makes the church to grow. It's not a solo event. It's not something, well, as long as I'm growing, it doesn't matter what the rest of you are doing. We'll be okay, or I'll be okay. No, you need the church because you're part of the church. Christ is giving his gifts through the church, and he is expecting those gifts to fit together, to be shaped and molded and placed so that we are a strong building, so that we are a living organism that is truly united, building itself up in love. Again, it's very possible to know the truths of the Bible and not have love. Paul says you can know in 1 Corinthians 13, you can know all mysteries, but if you have love, you're nothing. You can go to secular universities and their religion departments 
And their professors can tell you what the Bible teaches. They don't believe it. But they can tell you what it is. They will disparage it likely. Associate it with psychological weakness and myth and fantasy. But it is only as you love God and embrace Christ as he is to us. It is only as you love one another enough to build one another up in the truth of the gospel that the church will truly be united. Jesus came as the truth. He came because God loved the world. And he is building his church. That's what he said in Matthew 16. I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Christ is building his church. But he builds it through us. It is from him that the whole body makes the body grow. But it is through us that he works out that growth. And you see, as it works out through us, that just serves to bind us more tightly to one another. We are not just passive blocks, as it were, stuck together. We are part of those who are being shaped and fitted, and we are struggling and working to see that unity happen, but that will only happen as we are committed to the gospel and the truth of what Christ has done and how we are to live before him. And as we love one another in living out the truth, Jesus gave the Lord's Supper in order to seal that to us. For see, this is an act of love. To invite someone to your table is an intimate act to welcome them into the family. But the table is all about who Jesus is. He had to die because of our sins, because of our divisiveness. He had to rise to demonstrate that he had conquered death and the devil. We need one another. Christ's vision for the church is one church, one body. And we participate together. No one is unimportant. As each part does its work, that's how the body will grow. If one part is not working that presents a strain on the rest of the body. Just as in your own body, if, if, if your one foot is sore and you can't put your weight on it, that often creates pain in your knees and in your hips and in the rest of your body compensating. We need one another working properly, fitting together, growing to maturity in Christ. Now that's our call. But that's also our opportunity, our opportunity.
opportunity to be used of God to build his temple, to build his body that the world might see Jesus, the God of truth, the God of love. May God do that in us even today. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your amazing love. The Paul languishing in the prison did not give up on the church. He didn't say, well, there's nothing more I can do. He kept on striving to build the church. Lord, give us that same heart that we wouldn't feel off by ourselves. What difference will it make? What can I do? Paul pointed the church to Christ as the one who gives us the energy, the strength, the one who's working in us, but the one who's working through us. And how amazing it is, Lord, that you would work through us, sinful as we can be, selfish as we can be, that you would work through us for one another in order to build the body of Christ, that he would be our living head, that we would be seen to be his body, And that he would delight to work in and through us. Not only for his glory, but for our well-being. We acknowledge, Lord, we need your help. And so we pray with your help, using the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.